Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 13, and we'll read the chapter in its entirety. Let me ask you now to stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Genesis 13, beginning in verse 1 and reading the whole chapter. Hear, congregation, now the word of the Lord. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This time, uh, little ones are dismissed to the nursery. And let's now uh, pray, shall we? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Again, our Father, uh, we, we come uh, with delight and joy into your holy presence, and praying earnestly with all of our hearts now that you would speak to us through this, your holy word, of things eternal of heavenly things, of the things of your everlasting kingdom, 
and of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be numbered among the faithful. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the last time we were together, uh, looking together uh, last Lord's Day in Genesis chapter 12, we saw how even Abram, uh, the great man of God and friend of God and father of all the faithful who are in Jesus Christ, that even this man failed when he faced a great trial and acted with foolishness and cowardice when he urged his wife Sarai to lie to the Egyptians about their relationship. Indeed, the great man of faith's sin led to a number of complications that quickly ran out of control far beyond what he could have imagined as he subjected his wife to grave danger and to potential defilement. And we observed together how, humanly speaking, the promised blessings of the covenant were jeopardized by Abram's rashness, but that God intervened, saving Sarai before Pharaoh could get to her and sparing both of their lives and thus maintaining and preserving his covenant that their descendants would be blessed and that they would be many and that they would constitute a great nation and dwell in the land of promise. And thus we saw in man's frailty and sin that it is ever God who is faithful and that it is God's faithfulness to man and not man's faithfulness to God that is the ground of our hope and the foundation of the gospel. And we saw that if the kingdom were left up to us, it would surely collapse and fall if left in our hands, but God will never fail to maintain his kingdom. These are wonderful stories. They are human stories. They are powerful narratives. They reveal quite dramatically and quite profoundly at many levels the real facts of human life, of human frailty and of weakness, of sin and of cowardice, of faith and triumph, and also of failure. This is real life, life much as we live it. It's not fantasy. Life in the world, life in the kingdom. And we have another one of these stories before us today. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 13 that going up now out of Egypt, Abraham and his wife, Sarai and all that he had, together with Lot, his nephew with him, uh, came to the south. That doesn't mean that they were moving in a southerly direction. In fact, they were moving in a, in a northerly or northeasterly direction, but they came to the south, that is the southern part of Canaan, to the land of promise once again. We read in verse 2 that he, Abram, was a very wealthy man indeed, in some of the ways in which wealth would have been measured in the ancient world, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And remember how he acquired much of that wealth. It was at least in part the result of Pharaoh's generosity to him, and therefore out of the abundance of the Egyptians, prompted even by the lie that Abram had told none of which is flattering to Abram. 
that God blessed him materially in spite of his sin. But it is nevertheless a stunning testimony of God's grace and a reminder that he does not treat us at all as we deserve. So not only was Abram now breathing a tremendous sigh of relief that in spite of his foolishness, God had saved them. He had done more than save their lives. He had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians who showered them with wealth. He had guaranteed them safe passage back to Canaan. Indeed, he had done far exceeding abundantly beyond all that Abraham might have asked or even imagined. And as the great caravan journeyed on, they went as far as Bethel. Literally, the name means the house of God, where Abraham had pitched his tent at the beginning. And he returns to the place where he at first made his altar. And there, once again, Abram, a very rich man, called on the name of the Lord. Observe, a rich man may call on the name of the Lord. A rich man may have faith. A rich man may be a saved individual. For there are two extremes to be rejected. One of them says that the only path to holiness and salvation is through poverty there is an account uh, in the ancient world, from the ancient world of a Greek philosopher, uh, Crates of Thebes, uh, that he gave all his money away in order to live the life of poverty. One account has him giving his money away to the citizens of Athens. Another has him giving it to the bankers with the agreement that they should give it to his sons unless they too became philosophers, then they shouldn't receive it. The money should instead then be given to the poor. But the most famous account of Crates of Thebes has him casting all his money and all of his possessions into the sea because he did not think that he could be saved unless his riches were lost. Now surely many have said that the rich have no hope of salvation. The other extreme uh, is to say that riches are necessarily a sign of God's blessing and therefore that all faithful people should expect to be well off. Uh, both extremes should be avoided. But we must say this. Riches have been a stumbling block to many and often become a great burden a hindrance that makes men less ready to advance in the things of God and toward the kingdom of God. The Bible puts men on notice that wealth causes many to stumble on their way to heaven. And so it is to Abraham's great credit that though a rich man and though a recently enriched man he recalls to mind the promises of God. He returns to the land of promise, to the very place where he had once worshipped, and there again worships 
and once more calls on the name of the Lord. Not as if he didn't pray daily, but that here he makes his worship public and his profession known. And further, we commend him that his faith is still intact despite his recent failure in Egypt. I was at Presbytery several months ago and I met with an old pastor friend uh, from our times in Colorado. Uh, This was a man who was very uh, innovative in church growth methods and wanted to see the church flourish and grow in great numbers, was willing to try many things to see that, and we worked together and worshiped together a number of times. And I asked him, so how are things going with you? How are things going with the church? And he said, I'm, I'm thankful just to be a Christian still, to be able to say with Paul, Lord willing, at the end of my life, that I kept the faith, that I ran the race set before me, When I die, I simply want to be able to say, I'm still a Christian. And you see Abram here, don't you? He fell in Egypt. He failed. He acted the fool. And yet here he is, worshiping his faith still intact. Because faith and sin do coexist together in the Christian life. We've seen that. Even in our greatest heroes of faith, surely in ourselves, there is faith in us, there is sin in us, oftentimes great sin, living together. How much more reason did he have now to worship and to call upon God, who had lately saved him by his own outstretched hand? Well, Lot was now following Abram. And Lot, too, had become a wealthy man. To be sure, he was sharing in the blessings that the Lord was giving to Abram. But the great wealth of these two men posed a problem, as wealth often does. Their possessions were so great, their flocks and herds so numerous, that they could not occupy the same space in the central part of Canaan. It makes one think of uh, the movies, the westerns, I suppose, where uh, someone says, you know, this this town ain't ain't big enough uh, for the two of us. But the two men, uh, Abram and Lot, uh, were so well off, uh, their possessions so vast, their livestock so numerous, that that portion of land could not sustain them all. And it became then a source of strife and contention between their respective herdsmen who were now experiencing conflict in the fields over the needs of the animals, over the grazing land, over water resources, and so on. Very real problems, very practical realities that Wyoming ranchers surely could relate to. But notice, beloved, for Abraham, the concern was much more than an economic one or a financial one. He was deeply concerned 
lest this strife among the herdsmen cause a break in his relationship with Lot, whom he loved as a son or as a brother. For he says in verse 8, for we are brethren. Do you see the largeness of his heart and the generosity of this man's spirit? Let there be no strife between us. Let us not fight over this. We're family. We're brothers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As far as it is up to you, be at peace with all men. Colossians 3, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Abram may have failed in Egypt. He may have told a lie and asked his wife to do the same. But his was a large heart, a big heart, And he was motivated in the end, not by money or economic advantage, but by love and peace with his brother. And what pain, oh dear friends, what a source of pain and heartache is strife in the home and quarreling among family members, a household that lacks peace and joy, where there is infighting, where those who are bound to love one another are instead at war with one another. Now, ladies, don't be offended by this, but the reason the Bible says that a nagging wife is like a leaky faucet is not to degrade women, not at all, but to bemoan the endless strife that befalls the household where there is no peace. We say colloquially, uh, a man's home is is his castle. I don't know about that, but it is a pain to the soul to see those whom we love in our own families fight when there is no rest in the home, where brother fights with brother, When wife opposes husband, when husband demeans wife. And Abraham got this. He saw this. He understood this. It pained him to think of losing his relationship with Lot over their employees' strife. And so with a large heart, with a generous spirit, he, the older man, with every advantage to his credit, gave to his younger relative the choice of land, that he might go where he chose to go and settle there. How that must have pained him to separate from Lot. But separation was to be preferred to the prospect of unceasing warfare. Listen, beloved. 
We are brethren, he says. We are brethren. Are we not all adopted sons of God? Is there not a bond of love between us? Should we not be mutually brethren to one another? And is not this sacred bond of love less valued by us than it should be? Is it not sufficient, this bond of brethren, to soothe our contentions? Some of the worst things said, and some of the worst things written, and some of the worst things done are done by brothers against their brethren. And to this I would simply ask, are we not brethren as Abraham says we are. Here is Lot's moment of decision. You have faced one. You will face one again. Young people, you will face many. Here is a decision that will have profound and dramatic consequences for him and his family's future. Though he does not appreciate them now, and he does not know how they will, How is the decision to be made? How do you make decisions like this? What does he see? What is he looking for as he gazes out into the horizon, on the horizon of life? What's in his view? What is in your view? As you look out, as you gaze about you, from Bethel, 2,886 feet above sea level, you could see a lot. There was a magnificent view of the Jordan Valley, and Lot would have had no difficulty seeing a great distance, the land all about him. Verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Indeed, it was like the garden of the Lord. It's like the garden of Eden. Last summer, not not 2016, but 2015, uh, we went earlier than normal on our trip to the northwest, to Washington, where it had been exceedingly dry, uh, drought-stricken, Many fires had broken out, and it was late June, early July. We were driving home uh, past Billings and crossing the state line from Montana into Wyoming near Sheridan through Buffalo, and it was one of the most beautiful sights that I had ever seen. Wyoming was very, very green that time of summer uh, last year. It was the striking, beautiful, rich, green valley with mountains to the side. And it looked like the garden of the Lord, as if anything were possible. What did Lot see? Something like that. Green, deep, rich, verdant land. As far as his eye could see, he saw a lush, well-watered valley, the Jordan River Valley, a rich land, 
a flowing land that promised years and years of fruitfulness and productivity and riches for him and his family and his flocks and his herds. He looked and he saw his future and it was bright and full. He had needs. His family had needs. His animals had needs. His workers had needs. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw a land of opportunity that was everything a man could hope for. This was America the beautiful for the 19th century European immigrant. This was the frontier for the settler moving west. This was California in the 1950s. And so Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. He journeyed east. He separated from Abram. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain to the east, going as far as Sodom. Verse 12. And here, beloved, is introduced an editorial comment, an intrusion into the narrative by the writer in verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful, not only in the sight of men, but against the Lord. And it is in the near presence of these men that Lot has chosen to live with all the consequences that shall follow. I want you to see this morning, dear friend, that the story is about choices. It's about the choices that we make. Here are two very different choices made by two different men, men who have shared many experiences together, men who have shared faith in the Lord together, nevertheless, who appear to be motivated by very different concerns. And therefore, I want you to see as well that our choices in life really do have consequences, very real and very profound consequences. Consequences that are often unforeseen to us when we make the choices and the decisions that we make. Now the Bible does call Lot a believing man, a righteous man. Indeed, Peter calls him righteous Lot. So we must conclude in the end that Lot was a man of faith, that he was a believer, that he was righteous in the sight of the Lord through justifying faith. And yet we are never told that he was the kind of man that Abraham was. We're never told that he was a large-hearted man, that he was a man profoundly motivated by the great spiritual concerns of life, that he was spiritually minded. If he was a new creation in Christ, 
Surely the life of God was in him. There was some spiritual mind in him. But he so often seems to be motivated more by worldly concerns than by spiritual concerns. Even his choice in later chapters ultimately to leave Sodom, to flee immorality, seems more imposed upon him than willingly chosen by him. Such is the grace of God. But nowhere does he appear to have the kind of generous spirit, large-heartedness of Abram. To Abram, the strife was something that he could not bear. He could not accept it to have discord in the family. He wanted to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He knew that to fight in the family was dishonoring in the sight of the Lord. And this was more important to him than any other consideration. And so he gave Lot the choice of land. It was Abram's choice to do this. He was growing. He was learning spiritual lessons from his trial in Egypt. He had made a selfish decision before, a cowardly decision. He did not want to repeat it. He wanted to do what was pleasing to God. He could not abide fighting. And so you see a difference in these men in their priorities and in the importance that each man attaches to the will of God. God is enforcing lessons in Abraham. But you see differences as well in the importance that each man attaches to the things of this world. Both men were wealthy. But Abram seems to hold his wealth less tightly in his fists. He's willing to let Lot make the choice. He's willing to be dealt the weaker hand. He does not have to fight vigorously to defend his wealth. He's not willing to compromise his brethren for his money. He's not willing to lose his family over wealth. How often have we seen that? As siblings fight over the inheritance and come to hate each other, he values his family, his relative, his brother, far more than his money. He's growing in grace. He's acting like a believer with wisdom and with kindness. He doesn't have to quarrel to get what he deserves. He doesn't have to sue to protect what is his. He doesn't act out of greed, but of charity and love. He's willing to turn his back on prosperity in order to trust in God and do good to his neighbor, though there was a cost. But he's trusting the Lord, and that makes all the difference. He could not have chosen to live in Sodom. He knew the Lord would provide a place for him. He would find a spot somewhere in Canaan. Abram is walking by faith. He's motivated by spiritual concerns and by obedience to God. And his decisions reveal his priorities. But Lot is walking by sight. What does he see? a lush green land that could provide his every material need. 
But there is something he does not see. He was not looking for it. Lot was blinded by what this world has to offer him. And he couldn't see other things as obvious as the green valley. Especially the sin and wickedness of those cities of the plain. Their horribly corrupt life. The temptations that they would pose to his family. To his wife. To their ruin. For his choice, Lot got a green valley, but only temporarily. Verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What he really got was wicked neighbors. What he really got was a world of corruption and perversion and immorality that would become his family's downfall. He chose a moral cesspool. He never saw it coming. All he saw was green. Calvin writes of that, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. You know, I've observed dear friends, that we Christian people often repeat the mistakes of Lot when we make life's great decisions. When children go off to college, when people take a job in a new city, when people retire, they don't think much about spiritual concerns, i found. Where is the weather nice? Where can I earn a good living? Receive a good education? Have low taxes? Whatever. When my uh, dear sister, who I believed to have made a commitment to Christ in high school, went off to college, uh, to Berkeley, she did not make finding a church uh, a priority. She did not make finding Christian fellowship a matter of importance in her life. And she was living in Berkeley. That's a place you should probably do that. A few years later, uh, she met a man who was not a Christian, in fact, an atheist, and married him. The children are, you can imagine, not being raised to love Jesus Christ, but to think that Christianity is nonsense. When we were in Colorado still, a family who were members of our church, regular attenders with them and their daughter, most Sundays, I think, I decided to buy some land east of Castle Rock uh, where they could have horses and they bought some beautiful land and had a lovely home and wonderful horses. And it was a drive to come, but they said, we'll be there on Sundays, even though we moved. And we maybe saw them one Sunday, and then maybe a few months later, another Sunday, and then never again. 
We move for all kinds of reasons. Do we ever stop and think of the consequences to our souls, to that of our children and of our families? What will be the consequences of the choices we make and the decisions and the moves? What do you think Lot wanted? I'm sure he wanted Christ and Canaan. He wanted it all, along with a well-watered plain. And it was an immodest choice. Shouldn't he have given Abram, the elder, his choice? Where will you, especially you young people, make a home? You know, many of us live as if the story of Lot had never been written, as if there were no warnings for the people of God here. Do not be foolish, nor as short-sighted as this man was. Humble yourself before the Lord and consider the consequences of the choices that you make. Look at Abram, walking with God. Though he may have given up something, he was walking by faith and remained faithful to the Lord. And then look at Lot entering Sodom and the disaster this was to him and to his family. Look at the company they kept. The company you will keep one way or another. Everyone will keep a certain company and it will largely determine who you are. And these will be the kind of people you spend eternity with. But consider that and then make your choice, but only then. Is your greatest concern in the decisions you make for worldly wealth and comfort or for your soul and for that of your family? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, write your eternal truth on our hearts. Bless us, we pray, that we might seek your face with a whole heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.